All right, Wednesday nights, you're going to need a Bible because we're going to look some verses up, read some passages, and you'll need some notes if you like to follow along that way. We'll provide those each night. Our Wednesday night series, starting tonight, going all the way through uh, Wednesday nights in May when we break for the summer, is going to be systematic theology. And I'm fully, completely, entirely aware that a lot of people hear that title and think, that sounds really boring. That sounds really dense, and that sounds like something you would learn at seminary, and I don't think that has any application to my day-to-day life. And I promise you, I promise you it does. What we're going to do on Wednesday nights is go through, we're going to look at 20 different, there's 20 Wednesday nights between now and summer, 20 different key doctrines of the Christian faith and just kind of say, what does the Bible have to say about this doctrine? And our goal each night is to listen to what the scriptures say. We're going to look some verses up and I'm going to give you other verses you can look up on your own. Uh, We won't have time to look them all up. But tonight we're talking about the doctrine of revelation. And when I say the doctrine of revelation, I'm not talking about the last book in the Bible. I'm talking about the issue or the question of epistemology. I didn't make you spell that word tonight, but I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Epistemology, that's a big fancy word you can throw around this week and impress somebody. All that word means is it's the science of knowing, the study of knowing things. How do you know what you know? What gives you warrant to believe certain things or not to believe other things? How do we know what we know? Now, you probably don't think about epistemology very much on a day-to-day basis. You certainly probably don't think about the word. And to be honest with you, you probably don't think about the topic all that much. But I promise you, it's part of your life almost every single day, if not every day, whether you realize it or not. And I'll give you a few examples. Okay, I'll put some pictures up on the screen. First picture. That's a picture I took a couple of Sunday mornings ago when I got here for church. Uh, The sun was coming up over the church, and like all sunrise pictures taken with an iPhone, you say it was way better in person. You should have been there early in the morning and seen it. But you get the idea. Beautiful sunrise. I know people make fun of West Texas for our lack of trees and water and things, but we got pretty good sunrises and sunsets from time to time. And uh, so I put this picture up here to say, a lot of us in this room look at a picture like that or wake up one morning and see it, and immediately think, wow, way to go, God. That's awesome. That is a beautiful sunrise or sunset that God has painted in the sky. A lot of you would think that. A lot of other people on this earth would look at that and say, that's amazing. Look at how the dust particles are interacting with the sun's beams as it comes over the horizon and the earth rotates around the sun and we get closer... It is such a scientific, amazing thing to witness. They wouldn't have a single thought of God in their entire brain. How do people look at the exact same phenomenon and come away with two completely different perspectives on it? One saying, God, that's beautiful, and I praise you because the heavens declare the glory of God. And the other saying, science is amazing, Dust in the sky is so beautiful. That is fantastic. The difference is epistemology. How do you know what you know? A lot of you probably grew up with parents 
who when you saw a sunrise in the morning, your parents said something like, would you look at that, what God has put up in the sky for us to appreciate? And you've been to churches and you've had Bible studies on Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. And you've internalized that. A lot of other people are coming from a completely different experience in life and they look at the same thing and they see it differently. And the the bottom issue there is one of epistemology. Let me give you another example. Look at this picture. I saw this on Facebook today. That's my picture of my Facebook feed. I saw it all day. Every time I checked in, the Harrington boys were up there getting more likes, more likes. Uh, That is Logan and Mason in front of some fountain at some, like, Division IV college in Texas. I don't know where they were, but... um, I just put them up there because I saw them all day. doesn't really have anything to do with them or Texas Tech. Um, When you get on Facebook, okay, I get on Facebook, social media. I see a lot of posts that people throw on there that say something to the effect of, especially New Year, everybody's having their quiet time right now. Everybody's reading their little devotional book and things like that. We're all doing really good. So people get on and they post something like, oh, I was reading this morning and God told me, Da, 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 da. What do you mean by that? I mean, really, what do you mean by that? Do you mean like you were reading the scriptures and something like the light bulb went off and you got something, you understood it in a new way? Or do you mean like you really think you heard a voice? Or do you mean like it was just an internal thing and God told you something? And how do you know it was God? talking to you and not the burrito you had for breakfast? (laughs) Or how, how do you know? How do you know that? That's a question of epistemology. Did God really say that to you? Some people would swear up and down, yes, I know without a shadow of a doubt that God told me that. And we would say, well, I don't know. Because, you know, the Bible says this, and that's how God speaks to us, but it's a a question of epistemology. I'll give you one more example. Look at this picture. This was my lunch today. Anybody know where I had lunch? Pop and pitas. It was delicious. I had a pita, Berlin style, and a big old plate of salty fries, and it was fantastic. And it was not anything you would eat if you made a New Year's resolution about weight, but I ate it anyways, and it was really, really good. So I had lunch with a guy, and... um, This guy works in a church, not our church. And over lunch, we're talking about different things. And this guy uh, starts, we start to talk about the issue of gay marriage. And, well, we go to this kind of church. This is kind of what people like us believe. We go to this kind of church. This is what people like us believe. And then we get past churches, and we get a little more personal on the issue. And he... He basically says, my paraphrase of our conversation, you know, I know, I know what the Bible says about it. And I know what my denomination says about it. So I know, I know what the doctrine is. I know what the right answer is. But I've experienced this, this, and this in the last six months, and I'm kind of changing my view on it. My view is evolving, was his exact word. I'm evolving on the issue. Really, you're evolving on the issue. How Darwinian of you to evolve on the issue. How about that? And what he's saying is, I know that here's the answer from the scriptures. I got that. 
but I've experienced something in my life. I've seen something up close and personal, and that is changing. Really what he's saying, it is. it has changed what I believe about the issue to an entirely new position. So it doesn't matter what the answer is over here because my experience is going to shape my beliefs more than this book. That's a question of epistemology to which I want to say, and many of you would maybe want to say, I don't really care what your experience has been. I mean, this is what the scriptures say. If you can argue it to me and convince me from the scriptures, that's one thing. But just to tell me you just feel differently all of a sudden is really not convincing enough for me. All of these things are questions of epistemology. They all relate to the doctrine of revelation. So we're going to approach all these doctrines the same way. We're going to ask two questions. What do I need to know about this doctrine? Question one. And question two, why do I need to know it? What do I need to know? Why do I need to know it? And we're going to move pretty quick through the what do I need to know. So keep your pen ready, keep your Bible handy. Here we go. What do I need to know about the doctrine of revelation? We're going to start with the idea of general revelation. I want to explain to you what that is. General revelation is available to all people because it is found in nature and conscience. It is found in nature and conscience. Is available to all people. There is no one on this earth who lacks access to general revelation because they experience nature, whether that's flat land with mesquite trees, mountains and waterfalls, the ocean and sandy beaches, you experience it. You see the heavens above. And scripture says that all people have a conscience. That conscience can be marred by sin, right? Your conscience sometimes may not work properly, but all people have a conscience, okay? Secondly, general revelation. It teaches us that there's right and wrong. It teaches us that there's an afterlife. There's something other than what we experience here on this earth. And it teaches us that there is a God who is powerful and deserving of our worship. So what we're saying is, in your own conscience... When you look around at nature, what the scriptures tell us is that there is a revelation of God available to all people that teaches you there is a God up there. He's powerful. He made everything that I see. I ought to worship him. There is such thing as right and wrong, and there is something more than just this life. And the scriptures say all people intuitively know these things or have access to these truths. So let's look at a few of these passages really, really quick. Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes comes right after the book of Proverbs. So if you can find Psalms in the middle, then you go to Proverbs, then you go to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Saying God has built into people's hearts a sense of eternity, a sense that, look, this world existed before I showed up here. Something on the backside of me. There's going to be something after I die and you put me into the ground. And after I die, that's not the end of me. There's something else. He's put eternity into the hearts of human beings. 
Look at Psalm 19. Flip back to the left. We've talked about this passage a couple of times tonight. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. It's day and night. God's showing things, telling people things about himself through general revelation. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. It means, doesn't matter what language you speak. You don't get to say, well, God didn't put that in, into creation in English. Every tongue, every language has access to this. Their voice goes out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving its chamber like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun being one specific example of general revelation. And when you look up there and you see how big and bright and hot it is and how far away it is and you think about all that, you say, somebody had to put that thing up there. It didn't just happen. The psalmist is saying, when you look at creation, you see these things. Now, a key passage is Romans 1. Flip to the New Testament and look at Romans 1. Romans 1, starting in verse 18, and we'll just read a few verses here. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. There's no one who can have an excuse here. What, what's true about God is plain to all people. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, in creeping things. Verse 25 says they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And verse 28, again for the third time, says they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, so he gave them up to a debased mind. And what Paul's saying in Romans 1 is you got to wrap your brain around this. Yes, it's true that every human being can look at the things that God has created and see truth about God and learn truth about God, and it's obvious to them. But in our sin, we look at that creation and we see those things about God and we deny them and we suppress them down and we stuff them down and we try to forget them and we invent lies to replace the truth. That's what Paul's saying about general revelation. You can look up these other passages. Romans 2 talks about your conscience. Okay? That's general revelation. There's a guy named John Calvin. You've probably heard of Calvin. He wrote a lot of, a lot of dense books of theology. And he writes in his books of theology about something called the census divinitatis. I took an elective class in seminary uh, by, taught by a John Calvin scholar who was visiting to our school and so he talked all about Calvin, and this is what I had to write a paper on, the census divinitatis. And it's this idea, that's a Latin phrase that means all people have a sense of the divine. You just, they have this understanding. It is hardwired into us that we understand that there is something else out there that we can't see, that we can't access, 
It's different than us, a creator, a divine being, a spiritual being. He says it's hardwired into us, and I believe it. And I think despite the rise in secularism and people claiming to be atheists, I think it's still 100% true. That's a philosophical discussion for another day, but that's general revelation, okay? Let's talk about special revelation. Let me give you a few thoughts about special revelation. Special revelation, shorthand, we're talking about the Bible now, okay? The canon of Scripture includes the 66 books that make up the Old Testament and the New Testament. That is called by theologians the canon of Scripture. Canon just means it's a rule or it's a standard or it's a set or a collection. These 66 books, no more, no less, are the canon of Scripture. Now, here's the deal. We could spend all night talking about this one issue right here the books that make up the book of the Bible, and how do we know it's these 66, and how do we know we're not missing any, and how do we know we have one in there that shouldn't be in there. We could spend all night talking about that. All I want to say to you is 1 Timothy 5 is very clear. Paul quotes in 1 Timothy 5.8 from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, and he calls both of them scriptures in the same category. He quotes an Old Testament passage, and then he quotes a New Testament passage, within the New Testament, and then he says they're both Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament together, these books make up the canon. Uh, I'll show you another picture. Anybody know what this is? Anybody seen these? This is a project that was on Kickstarter like two and a half years ago, and a guy named Adam Green said, I want to come out. He was kind of the first guy to come up with this idea. He said, I'm going to come out with an edition of the Bible that has no chapters, chapter numbers, no verse numbers, it's just the text. No notes, no numbers in your way, no nothing, just the text. Like you would read a story in a novel. He said, I want, I want it to look like that on the page. And people said, this is the greatest idea ever. People paid money, like me. See, that's my set over there on the right, sitting in my, in my dining room. Got it the other day, two and a half years later. Supposed to be a six-month project. Two and a half months later, two and a half years later. And so I got mine finally. It took him two and a half years. About five other Bible publishers have come out with their own since he first had the idea and before he got his out. And there was a big controversy after he started promoting this and people started buying it. And the controversy was do you see the difference in the two pictures? Mine has four, the picture on the right has five. And a lot of people, after they started signing up for this, said, wait a minute, we want the Apocrypha in it. We want those extra books that you're not including in the Scriptures. And so he went back and he gave everybody who had purchased it an option. And he said, here's what you can do. You can have the extra book, the fifth book, the Apocrypha, all these extra books that we don't count in our 66. Or you cannot have it. And so I got that email, and I said, of course, I'll take a free book, but I don't want it in with the other four books. I'm just going to put it on a separate shelf. I'm going to put the Bible on one shelf, and I'll take the other free book and put it on another shelf. But that's a question that would be between Protestants and Catholics. We would say the canon of Scripture has 66 books, and they would say, yeah, we like those 66, but we want to add a few more into it. And that's a question of epistemology, the doctrine of revelation. What do you believe is God's Word? Again, we could spend a whole night talking about that. What I'm telling you tonight is for our purposes, you have good reason to believe that the 66 books make up the Old and the New Testament are the canon of Scripture. 
If you want to argue about it or talk about it later, I'd be happy to do that. Here we go quick. You ready? The inspiration of Scripture means that the words of the Bible are God's word. They are his word. He inspired it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says he breathed these words out. 2 Peter 1.21 says men were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God so that they spoke, they wrote down the very words of God. The scriptures are inspired by God. Listen, when we say inspired, we mean something different than when your favorite musical artist sings the national anthem and you say, oh, that was inspiring. We're not, we're not saying like they just lift us up and make us feel good or this is like a motivational thing. But what we mean is God inspired the words that these men wrote down into these books so that the words they wrote were at the same time their words and God's words. They are his words. That means, this is letter C, the inerrancy of Scripture teaches us that the Bible is truthful in all things. If the words of the Bible are God's words, we know from his character that they must be true words. You can't have any wiggle room in here if you believe in inspiration, that God inspired these words to then turn around and say it's full of mistakes. It's full of things that need to be updated or changed. Inerrancy means it's without error. It's truthful in all things. And you can look up some of these great verses here uh, that I listed out. D, the sufficiency of Scripture means the Bible is all we need for life and godliness. Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures are breathed out by God. They're useful for teaching and training and rebuking and correcting and righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. They're sufficient to make you into the kind of person that you need to be. You don't need to see a miracle to have real faith in Jesus. The scriptures are sufficient. You don't need to have a dream or a vision from God to really feel close to him. The scriptures are sufficient for that task. That's what this means. The reformers, Luther and Calvin and all these other guys, when they're leading the Protestant Reformation, they talked about sola scriptura. Scripture alone. We don't need traditions of the church. We don't need some hierarchy of bishops and popes and cardinals to tell us all these different things. We don't need these passed down Uh, ceremonies and all this stuff. The scripture alone is sufficient. Scripture alone. E, the authority of scripture means it has the final say on matters of truth and we're obligated to believe it and obey it. That's the authority of scripture. Let Let me give you a few examples of how this gets twisted. Okay, the authority of scripture. In a Catholic context, this becomes secondary to church tradition. That the Pope speaking in his, his papal office or that church tradition is passed down by the fathers has equal authority to what you read in the scriptures. It's equally true. Doesn't, it doesn't have the same authority in our understanding, but the Catholic tradition would say, yeah, they, they're equal in authority. In a liberal Protestant, we talked about this a few weeks ago on Wednesday night, in a liberal Protestant setting, they would say, look, science and sociology and uh, all the social sciences, they have as much to say about what is true as the Bible does. So the Bible says this about certain behaviors, but today we're enlightened and we know that this is true. And so we're not going to let this old ancient document trump what we know to be true from science. And we're going to hold 
science and our discoveries and our enlightened theories in a position of authority over the scriptures. We're going to use what we know today to look back and understand the Bible instead of vice versa. In a lot of charismatic churches, okay, not all, but in a lot of charismatic churches, they're going to say, we believe the Bible. The Bible's great. We're all for the Bible. We talk about the Bible. We study the Bible. We also have dreams and visions, and God tells us these things. And they carry as much weight as anything that you would read in the Bible. And some of you have experienced that in churches, where somebody has come to you and said, the Lord has given me a word for you. And you're expected to believe it and obey it and follow it like it, you just read it in Romans 3 or something. And what they're saying is it's equal in authority because God told it to me. And what we're saying as we study this systematically, the scriptures are sufficient. They're all that you need. And they alone have authority over tradition, over our enlightened theories, over things we feel like God might be showing us or saying to us. Scriptures are the authority. F, the necessity of scripture means you can't find salvation apart from a knowledge of special revelation. That's unmistakably clear in Romans 10, where Paul basically says, we got to send people, they got to preach, because someone's got to hear, because until those things happen, nobody's going to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Which is why I ask you to sacrifice for a missions offering. If I believed that there were people out there, and you could show me in the scriptures and reason with me and explain it to me. There's people out there who have never heard about Jesus who may end up going to heaven anyways. Why in the world would we make a sacrifice for missions? We wouldn't. There'd be absolutely no reason to. But we sacrifice because we believe Romans 10. People need to hear the truth of the scriptures if they're going to be saved. G, the Bible is christ Focused. Christ focused. It's not primarily a book of instruction or an anthology of role models. Too often, especially with our kids and youth, we treat it like that. Like, this is just a book that tells you how to live a good life. This is just a book that tells you about a lot of neat, nice, inspiring guys like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the rest of them. I'll be honest with you. If you're looking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for uh, role model type stuff, you're really looking in the wrong place. I'm studying uh, the early chapters of Genesis with a group of guys right now, and we just keep looking at these guys saying, these guys are pathetic. I mean, if you don't know that those guys were pathetic, I don't know that you've ever really read Genesis. They're just pathetic, one after another. They do the dumbest, craziest, stupidest, most wicked, depraved things. Some of the stuff in there, you can't even hardly feel like you can talk to your kids about it. It's so graphic and disturbing. They're not role models. They're just sinful people. The Bible is not just this collection of you should be like Daniel, you should be like Abraham, you should be like Noah, you should be like this guy. The Bible is a story of how God has worked in history to bring salvation through Christ. You read about all these wicked, crazy guys in Genesis and you say, I don't know how God did it, I don't know why he did it, I don't know why he picked these guys, but these are the people he worked through to bring the Messiah into the world and our salvation is him. So it's Christ-focused. Last, the Bible is powerful. It's a powerful, life-changing book. And we talked about this a little bit on Sunday. It's a powerful, life-changing book. That's what you need to know. Why does it matter? Six thoughts. 
Number one, God revealing himself to us is an act of grace. I know that we think about grace as the stuff we get from Jesus dying on the cross for us, and that's true. That's a great thought to have when you hear the word grace. You need to also understand that the fact that this book exists at all, that God has spoken through the writings of human beings, and we have this collection of 66 books written by dozens of different authors on multiple continents over thousands of years that tells one complete, whole, true story. The fact that this book exists is God's grace to us. God does not owe you this book. He does not owe you this revelation simply because you exist. He owes you hell and death. And the fact that he's given you this story of what he's done in history to bring about salvation and redemption for sinful people like us is an act of his grace. He could have just left us to ourselves and said, look, you just need to look at creation and you need to figure it out for yourself. And if you don't, you'll be held responsible for that. That would be perfectly fair and just and righteous of God. But the fact that he's given this given us this book that tells us what he's like and what he's done and who Jesus is and the salvation and the hope that we can have through Christ is an act of his grace. And I, I'm exactly like you. I take it way too lightly. I mean, it's, just, it's like another book on our shelves. It's another thing we might cram into our day if we have time for it or if we feel like it in the morning or if we don't hit the snooze 14 times when the alarm goes off. This is God's word to his people. This is the story of salvation that gives us hope, and it's his grace to us, and I think we take it far too lightly. Secondly, general revelation leaves us without excuse. Without excuse. We read that in Romans 1. The things that can be known about God in creation are plain to all people and we are without excuse for not worshiping him as the creator and the sustainer and the ruler of all things. There is no category, okay, are you tracking with me? There's no category of person like this man on the island who hasn't heard enough to be held accountable before God. Paul says in Romans 1, that man does not exist. There's no one out there who on the last day is going to stand before God and say, well, you know, no one came and told me, and how was I supposed to know? Because what Paul says in Romans 1 is you should have looked up at the skies and seen it. You should have looked at the sun like a bridegroom going from one side to the other and figured it out. But in your sinfulness, in the hardness of your heart, you took what was plain and you just stuffed it down and you exchanged the truth about God for a lie. No one has an excuse before God. Number three, special revelation is clear on the main things. Uh, As a pastor, I haven't started getting these questions yet, but I expect them about the end of February. When people who made a New Year's resolution to read through the Bible get into like Leviticus and Numbers and stuff. I mean, they're going to track pretty good through Genesis and Exodus. The end of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, people will start texting me saying, what does this mean? 
I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. And I'll be honest with you. There's some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. I mean, there's some stuff you really got to work, work over with your mind and think about it and study it and pray for God to give you wisdom. But we believe in something called the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity of Scripture. It means the Bible on the main things is clear. It's clear. On the things that are central to salvation and godliness, it's clear. Ten Commandments are not confusing. Don't have any gods before God. Don't worship idols. Don't take God's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. That's not complicated. Any kid down the hall can understand those things if you explain it to them and teach it to them. John 3.16 is not complicated. God loved the world despite our sin, despite our rebellion. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's not complicated. It's not hard to understand. And so people can say, well, I just don't get the Bible. I just don't understand the Bible. It just doesn't make sense to me. I'm not sure that you've really tried to get at the main message of it. Because the main message is pretty clear. It's pretty obvious. It's clear on the main things. Number four, we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. This is something called the analogy of faith. And basically what it means is when you come to something in the Bible that's sort of a head-scratcher, look for another passage that's maybe easier to understand and use that to make sense of what you just read. When you come to Peter on the day of Pentecost, telling the people in Jerusalem, if you want to be saved, you need to repent and be baptized. Then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You say, wait a minute. Do you have to be baptized to get saved? Well, don't just try to sort that question out in your mind. Go to another passage like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of works. And this is a gift of God so that no one can boast. That's pretty clear. And you go back and you say, okay, look, obviously what Peter is saying here is you need to repent. And if you truly do that, you're going to believe in Jesus. And you show that through your baptism. All those things are important. And that's what Peter said. So you use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Number five, sadly, the Bible does not answer all of our questions. The secret things belong to God. And there's some stuff that he just doesn't tell us. And there you go. Number six, and we're going to look at these passages. No one understands spiritual things apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. No one understands spiritual things apart from the work of the Spirit. Let's look at these verses. Matthew 16. We'll start up in verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? They said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
The only reason you got that answer right and it was right is because God revealed it to you. And if God hadn't done that, you wouldn't have got it right. You're blessed, not because you got the right answer and you deserve some kind of gold star. You're blessed because God in his grace has revealed something to you that is true. Look at John 3. John chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See this? This guy comes and he says, We know something about you. Jesus says, Well, let me tell you something I know. No one is going to see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. doesn't matter what you think you have figured out. You have to be born again to experience the kingdom. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, same Greek word for spirit. The spirit, the wind, blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, God has to do something in your life for all this to make sense and for you to actually experience the kingdom of God. You're not going to figure it out on your own. You're not going to be able to put all these pieces together and do this on your own. God has to do something in you. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. First Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able doesn't have the ability, not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, the person who has not experienced God's grace, cannot understand these things. It's impossible for that to happen. They have to be spiritually discerned. They have to be a spiritual person. How do you become a spiritual person? John 3, you have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be born again. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. Let's start in verse 1. Paul says, Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. As people who go around and preach the gospel, we're not going to lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Meaning, I'm not going to try to manipulate you. I'm not going to try to play on your emotions. I'm not going to try to back you into some corner where you feel like you have to make a decision. I'm not going to try to embarrass you into following Jesus. I'm just going to give you the plain statement of the truth. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the case of those who are perishing lost people. 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They've been blinded. They can't see the truth of the light of the gospel because the God of this world has veiled their eyes. They can't see these spiritual things. Verse 5, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. How does a person in Odessa, Texas today come to a point where they have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus? How does that happen? Paul says it right here. God has to shine light in their heart. I can't preach a good enough sermon to make it happen. Our Awana teachers can't be convincing enough in beating Bible verses into those little brains down the hall to make it happen on their own. God has to make it happen. His Spirit has to make it happen. The one who said, let light come out of darkness, who created light out of nothing, can take someone in their spiritual blindness, in their spiritual death, and he can give them light. Again, that goes back to John 3, being born again. Okay, so that's the doctrine of revelation. And it is important, and you face it every day. And the bottom line that you and I take away is the scriptures have to be our ultimate authority when it comes to matters of truth and matters of salvation. And that's got to be the foundation that we stand on. So one thing I'm going to do every week is I'm going to just tell you about a couple of books for those of you who like to read. If you don't like to read, then don't worry about it. You can uh, pack your notes away and it's no big deal. But those of you who like to read, I'm going to give you a few books. Um, I'm going to bring them in here every night so you can look at them. You can't have them because when I loan books out, they just disappear. But you can come look at them if you want to. I'm happy for you to do that. Uh, This is a great book. It's called Christian Beliefs, 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know. Um, I've read through this book, and I promise you my fourth, uh, fifth grade daughter could read through it and understand 95% of it. So it's not deep, heavy, intimidating stuff. It's just basic stuff that you need to know as a Christian, 20 doctrines. We're not doing all of these 20, by the way. We're doing a different 20, but there's some overlap. Um, This is a great book. You know I like this book? It has pictures. Everybody likes picture books. I don't care how old you are. Pictures are good. This is a book by a guy named Clinton Arnold, and it's called How We Got the Bible, A Visual Journey. And there's plenty of words in here, but there's also some really cool pictures. And he basically answers the question in this book. We talked about it briefly. How do we know the 66 books that we have are the right 66 books and we're not missing any and we don't have too many and how did all of that come about? Uh, If you've watched stuff like the Da Vinci Code or Dan Brown movies, he gives you all kinds of crazy stuff about how it happened. It's just total fiction. It didn't happen that way. And Arnold explains how it happened and it's a very helpful book. Um, One other I'll mention, I know I gave you six, but I'll just mention one more, is a book by R.C. Sproul called Scripture Alone. What does it mean to believe that Scripture alone is our authority? And this book's a little bit more challenging, but any of you, I'm sure, could could read it and uh, and profit from it. So I'll leave these up here. If you want to look at those afterwards, you can. If not, then that's fine as well. Next week, we're going to continue with... Theology proper, the doctrine of God, and it's going to be a good night. We're going to talk about some of God's attributes and why you need to know them and why they're important. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to call it good on doctrine of revelation, and we're going to pray.